Good evening, everybody. How are you? Good. Okay, we... Let's go ahead and... Uh, how's the volume? Is that too loud? That is too loud, huh? How's that? Is that a little bit... Uh, still a little loud. Okay, so... This evening, we're going to be talking about, as you can tell, divine simplicity. I think it's going to be a little bit strange, a little bit familiar, um, and hopefully not too objectionable. But let's go ahead and pray, um, and then we will get into it. Heavenly Father, um, I just want to pause and direct our attention to you. Um, Of course, Lord, we want to learn about you. We want to grow in our understanding of who you are um, and use our best judgment and reason in the process, but we never want it to be just merely knowledge. Um, We want to grow closer to you. In fact, our whole enterprise of theology is intended toward that end, to get to know you as you are and to bring us further into worship. And I think particularly with a doctrine like this, Lord, um, it's not all that practical and there's not a lot about it that, you know, we can take and implement in our daily lives, but it's an object of our worship to grow in our knowledge of you and to, to, well, to worship you and to stand in awe of you, Lord, and so we do. And we ask that you'd go before us this evening, that you would direct our, uh, our speech and our conversation, Lord, that everything would be pleasing to you. And uh, again, Lord, I just want to thank you for each person here. Um, again, I could very well be doing other things, but I'm just glad to have these people here and have them as committed members of our body and people who love you. And uh, we're just grateful, Lord, and we ask that you would... Uh, Go before us this evening, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, so um, we are on the back half of our uh, little series here. I thought about going a few extra weeks, but in all honesty, about six weeks is, is it for classes. A little bit more than that is just too much. So we've covered up to this point the um, the transcendence of God. We talked about how to understand Scripture in light of that, how to read Scripture in light of this God who is wholly transcendent. Um, That was our second one. And then our third course, we last week talked about God's aseity, his from himselfness is what we talked about. That God, and we'll rehash it a little bit later on in um, our lecture this evening, but that God Uh, doesn't derive his existence or his attributes or anything at all about who he is from anything outside of him. Rather, God is the source of his own existence. He is the source of his own life. He's completely self-sufficient. So we talked about that last week, and I'll bring that up just to say our lecture this evening, talking about divine simplicity, is really just taking the doctrine of divine aseity and taking it one step further. We're going to be talking about much of the same stuff, uh, much of the same material, and just going one step further. So, before we 
get into the biblical evidence for simplicity and what it is, uh, or, or coming, with a, coming away with some biblical reasons for this, I first just want to give us an explanation. I want to try to explain the doctrine as best as I can, and then move from um, that understanding of it to the biblical material. Hopefully that'll be a little bit easier for us to uh, comes, come to grips with. So, divine simplicity. Again, it's a very theological word. It's something that has never seeped into our everyday vocabulary, but it's something that I found is affirmed all throughout church history, all throughout the church's uh, good theologians, and so on and so forth. So, anyway, divine simplicity is simply to say that God is without parts. That doesn't make sense just yet, but hopefully it will. So, just give me a few minutes. It's to say that God is without parts. Now, again, I know that sounds strange, but let's go ahead and unpack what that means to say that God is without parts. And so, rather than me attempting my own explanation, um, we're going to follow that of theologian James Dolezal. In his book, All That Is In God, and I recommend it to you if you want to kind of jump into this classical understanding of God, his book is absolutely wonderful. But in his book, speaking of divine simplicity, he says, Whatever is composed of parts depends upon its parts in order to be as it is. A part is anything in a subject that is less than the whole and without which the subject would be really different than it is. In short, composite beings need their parts in order to exist as they do. So again, still very much on the conceptual side, and I don't expect you to make sense of that right away. So let's put an illustration to it. Take, for instance, your body. It is a composite or a combination or a synthesis of many parts. A brain, a heart, lungs, eyes, legs, kidneys, etc., etc. It is a composite of those parts. Now, most definitely, your body is not any one of those parts. The body has eyes, but it is not the eyes. Right? That makes sense. The heart, or excuse me, the body has a heart, but it is not a heart. It has lungs, but it is not the lungs. Rather, the body is composed of those things. It depends upon them to be what it is. The body is a combination of its various parts. And without those parts or any one of those parts, your body would be significantly diminished. Certainly, you can lose some parts of your body and still go on sort of normally, but other things are more vital to the functioning of the body. So, use that as an explanation or an illustration for uh, Dozal's description of a composite being. A composite being is made up of parts, and it needs those parts to be what it is. Again, he says... Um, it needs their parts in order to exist as they do. It depends upon those parts. So let's go ahead and, again, just to bring this home just a little bit more, the same thing goes for a watch, right? Like your body, a watch is a composite of many parts. Now, if you just take a classic watch, it's made up of about 130 parts. If you combine those components properly, the crown will 
the spring wheel, the balance spring, etc., etc., um, you're going to get a watch if you put them together in the right way, in the right order according to the process. Again, the watch has those parts. It has the crown wheel, the spring wheel, so on and so forth, but it, it, but it is not those parts. It has them, but it is not them. Just like our body has different parts and organs and limbs, but it is not those things. Those combine to make the body what it is. The parts of the watch combine to make the watch what it is. And again, you take any of those parts away, the watch ceases to be a watch, the body ceases to be uh, a body, or at least function like it should. So um, we get that part of his explanation, but then he goes further and he says, if God should be composed of parts, of components that were prior to him in being, he would be doubly dependent, first on the parts and second on the composer of the parts. Okay, so I'll stop this in just a second. We can talk more about it. And I'll get to his explanation or, or what he, why he says God is not made up of parts. But again, it's this um, compositeness or partiness, if you will, that um, we want to deny in God. That is, God is not composed of parts the way a human body is composed of parts or the way that a watch is composed of parts. Practically, we might say, God is not part love, part holiness, and part power in all the right places and all the right proportions, like a divine recipe, right? If you just kind of plug in these different attributes and you multiply them to infinity, then you get God. Rather, God is simply God. And Dozal says, without getting to a positive explanation, he says, if God were composed of parts, he would be dependent upon them. They would exist prior to him, and ultimately God would need a composer. Now, we'll get more to that in a minute. Let me just say a few more things about um, simplicity before we move on. So, rather than God being composed of parts, we get to the content of our doctrine today, that God is simple. Again, he is not part love, part holiness, and part power, and part whatever else. Rather, God is love. God is holiness. God is power. God's attributes are not things that he possesses, but what he is in his being in nature. Okay, So, that might sound maybe very conceptual and hard to understand, but it's something that I think in our day-to-day experience and just in our own thinking about God that we naturally arrive at. Um, I remember some time ago in our men's Bible study, I don't remember exactly what we were talking about or what passage we were studying in, but I remember Greg Jones saying that God doesn't have and I can't remember the exact attribute, but I remember he did say this. We'll just use justice. God doesn't have justice, but he is justice, right? God doesn't have power or love, but he is these things. That's what we're talking about when we speak of divine simplicity. And in fact, you have those affirmations in Scripture. They're few and far between. First John chapter 1, um, God is light. Um, First John chapter 5, 4, excuse me, God is love. John chapter 4, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and 
the life where it's not just God has these things, but God is these things. So a shorthand definition of divine simplicity would be uh, to say that all that God has, God is. All that God has, God is. So name something that God has. Go ahead, anything. God God has? I'm sorry, Greg? Grace? Okay, then we would say God is gracious or is grace. Same thing if we were to say God has, let's say, a particular attribute of mercy. God has mercy, then God is mercy. God has power, then God is power. So I'm going to move on and explain this a little bit further, but before I do, I want to take a step back and assess the room. How do we feel about that? Is that a little strange? Is it new? Is it different? Any questions? Any comments? Yeah, he's pretty straightforward. Yeah, not too much dancing around. Yeah. Okay, anything else? Mike? Okay, I knew someone was going to bring it up. <laughs> okay, that's wonderful. It actually... Uh, to foreshadow a bit, simplicity was used by the, at the time these debates were happening, by these great theologians, Athanasius and um, uh, Basil of Caesarea and so on and so forth. Simplicity was used actually to affirm the Trinity rather than to deny it. People were, um, anyway, we'll get to that. But, okay, God doesn't have parts. Um, Conceptual, theoretical enough. All right, so let's keep going. So let's follow up that succinct definition of simplicity. All that God has, God is, with an illustration from Augustine. In The City of God, um, Augustine writes, When a nature is called simple, it cannot be different from what it has. So remember, the, remember our definition, all that, God, all that God has, God is. And so, Augustine's saying here, if something is called simple, it cannot be different from what it has. And so he gives some examples. He says, a cup is different from the wine it holds, a body from its color, the air from its light and warmth, the mind from its wisdom. None of these, he says, is what it has. The cup is not the liquid and nor is the body its color, nor the air its light and warmth, nor the mind its wisdom. All of these, therefore, can be deprived of what they have. They can be converted into other states or qualities. For example, a cup may be emptied of the contents of which it was full. The body may lose its color. Um, the air may darken and grow cold. The mind may lose its sanity. Okay, so... The straw was better. So you get the point that um, Augustine is making. So he says, he uses the example of a cup and its contents, a body and its color, the air and its temperature, the mind and its wisdom. Okay, what is the common denominator in all of these examples? It's division. Division. The cup is not the content it has. The body is not the color it possesses, nor is the air its temperature, the temperature that it conveys, and neither is the mind the wisdom which it exercises. Again, because the cup 
although it may have liquid, it, is, um, it may be emptied of its contents. The body, though it has a certain color in the winter, can lose that color. Um, the air, of course, conveys a certain temperature, but that temperature changes. The mind has wisdom, but it may lose its wisdom and become insane. So you see what the examples that he's using, the contents of the cup, the color of the body, the temperature to the air, the mind and to its wisdom. In all these examples, the thing that it has is non-essential and optional. Okay, the skin is still the skin and so on and so forth. You get the point that he's making. And he goes on to say, this is not the way it is with God and his attributes. A cup can still be the cup without its contents. The body can still be its body without its color. But God cannot be God without his attributes. They are not accidental or optional to him. Does that make sense following that illustration? God doesn't have his attributes the way maybe a cup has its liquid. as something that he can divest himself of and then pick back up. uh, The way the body can lose its skin color and then regain it. These aren't things that are optional to God's nature. So, another theologian, um, Matthew Barrett, in his book, None Greater, he puts it this way. God's attributes are not external to his essence, as if they are added, as if they added a quality to him that he would not otherwise possess. It's not as if there were attributes that were accidental to God capable of being added or subtracted, lost and then found, as if they did not even exist in the first place. Rather, here's his affirmation of simplicity, God is his attributes. So, again, Barrett sums it up. God's attributes are not external to his essence. That is, God does not have love, holiness, or power, the way that a cup has its contents or the body as its color, as something accidental and optional that it can be, that God can be divested of. Rather, God, as Barrett says, and as we're affirming, God simply is his attributes. They are not external to him as separate and distinct things. Rather, they are him, such that God would no longer be who he is without them. God is simple, as we've said, because he is what he has. Okay, so does that make sense? What we're saying here, let me maybe try to put it another way. God's attributes don't exist independently of him. It's not that there's this thing out there that is love. It's not that there's this thing out there that is power or um, holiness that God then takes and he implements in his own life. He says, I'm going to pull from this thing called love and embody it in my life. I'm just going to do it perfectly. And the same goes for any other attributes. Rather, what we're saying is that these things simply are God. They simply are the divine nature. And we'll make arguments for this a little bit further, but I just want to make sure we at least understand what is being claimed with divine simplicity. We can get into, okay, are we, do we really believe this or not when we get into some of the arguments? So, actually, which is right now. Um, so, Easy to understand? Are we all on the same page? We get what's being affirmed here? Any questions? Why would there be a debate? I mean, like, what's that? Why would there be a debate? It would make so much sense. Right. And on this part of it, there's not so much of a debate. 
although some people do deny simplicity, and it's for reasons based on how we read the Bible, and so we'll get to that. Um, but to be perfectly honest, again, simplicity is something that has fallen out of favor in the past uh, 200 years or so. I, can't, I don't know exactly when it is, but most of the material that I was reading are saying that people are definitely moving away from this understanding of God to affirm that God does, he does have parts. Or they just say, this is too philosophical and it has nothing that pertains to the Bible, so we're going to just do away with it, just ignore it altogether. So, Mike, did you have a question or something to say? Um, I'm not sure what you mean by that. There goes Mike getting ahead of me once again. <laughs> so we'll come to that one. That's, that's the part where people really have a hard time. And uh, I believe so. I believe that in God, all attributes are one. They're not distinct. But some people have a hard time going there. And I'll explain the theologians who won't go that far and kind of hold them out to you that if okay, you don't want to make that final jump, you don't have to. So, um, yeah, so we'll get to that. So... Uh, let me go ahead and move to the scriptural basis for divine simplicity. And before we get into it, I just want to say a few things about our approach to this and how even just theolog- theology works. Um, because if we're looking for a proof text for divine simplicity, uh, where either in the Old Testament or the New Testament, someone just outright says, or God himself says, thus saith the Lord, I am a simple, uncomposite being. You know, that's nowhere to be found in the scriptures. Um, And the way we at least do theology, I think the best explanation is um, what Dolezal actually in his book, he compared it to building a house with pre-existing materials. The pre-existing materials are there in the scriptures. Um, Again, the scriptures aren't a systematic theology book. Especially you think about like Paul's letters to the churches in the New Testament. He, he's not telling them, okay, let me explain to you everything you need to know about Christology. He's writing to church to churches where there are all these moral problems, all these different issues, and what he does is he writes to their experience, but he uses theology to inform it. So think about the letter to the Philippians. There's division that's happening within the church you uh, chapter four between Iodia and Syntyche right where there's they're kind of button heads and there's seems like something's going on there and so what does Paul do he says okay look at Christ who although he was in the form of God did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped but he humbled himself and he came in the likeness of men and so on and so forth he became a servant and he says he explains this theology and then he says now go live it so it's not a textbook there's the pieces there where Paul will mention something in passing, where he'll give a brief explanation. And so in the scripture, what we have are the various parts to the building. Now in Paul's mind or in Isaiah's mind or in the mind of Christ, all those parts are fitted together. They're speaking from that. And now it's our job to take these pre-existing materials and to try and put them together 
in a way that makes sense, right? And that's what we're doing with simplicity. And it's, it's not a reason to deny it because you think about even the doctrine of the Trinity. There's no place in the New Testament or the Old Testament that just outright says God is Father, Son, Holy Spirit, three co-eternal persons, not three gods but one, not one God but three distinct uh, manifestations. There's no place that just lays it all out. Rather, you have a hint in John chapter 1. You have a hint in Colossians 1. You have a hint in Philippians 2 and so on and so forth. And we've got to take the material and put it together. We've got to try and make sense of it. And so all of theology is one giant conversation and saying, okay, I see how you put it together and you did a pretty good job, but let's maybe change this. Let's do this differently. Let's try this. And it's all an effort to try and reconstruct what's going on behind it. So that's what we're doing with simplicity. I can't just say, here it is, believe it, and that settles it. Rather, this is something we're taking and uh, we're taking the biblical material and we're reasoning from it. We're taking it and trying to put the picture together. So, anyway, all that said, last week we covered um, God's aseity. And again, that was intentional, like I said, because the doctrine of simplicity flows from the doctrine of divine aseity. And so let's go ahead and rehash it. Aseity, remember, is God's from himselfness. That is, God doesn't derive his existence from someone or something else. Uh, rather, it's as John chapter 5, verse 26 says, that God has a life in himself, right? Everything flows from him. He doesn't receive anything from the outside. Um, maybe to put it differently, you could say that God is his own life. So um, let's just go back just for a moment to Job chapter 41, verse 11. You guys remember this from last week. God speaking to Job says, Who has given to me that I should repay him? Whatever is under the whole heaven is mine. And again, of note for us is that word given. And the Hebrew, it literally means to be in front of or to be beforehand. And again, the idea is that nothing has come before God, nothing has gotten out in front of him so as to give him something he does not already have. Rather, God's life is simply unaccounted for. You can't point to, okay, it came from here, so on. So it's just, God just is. And so, that's a brief explanation um, of aseity, but you can see that without stating it explicitly, implied here is the doctrine of divine simplicity. If there is nothing behind or above or before God, then he must be simple. In other words, if God is first and uncreated, his attributes are not out there existing as qualities which he embodies in his own life, but rather the attributes of God are God. So uh, Stephen Duby, quite the name, he, um, he uh, in his book on divine simplicity, he says, God himself alone is that which renders God who and what he is. So there's an affirmation of aseity, right? That's what we talked about last week. God himself alone is that which renders God who and what he is. God doesn't get his existence or his attributes from anything else. And so he, then he takes one more step. And he does not glean or assemble what he is from other things which would be. So if God is truly 
first. If God is truly unoriginate, there's nothing behind him or above him or alongside him that gives him his nature or his attributes. So, God's attributes are not abstract objects or qualities that exist independently of him or alongside him. Rather, from eternity, they have existed in God as God himself. Again, let me uh, read you another one, this this time from Anselm. He says, But clearly, whatever you are, you are not that through another, but through your very self. You are therefore the very life which you live, the wisdom by which you are wise, the very goodness by which you are good to both good men and wicked, and the same holds for like attributes. So you see the first part, you are not that, um, he says, whatever you are, you are not that through another, but through your very self. There's a seity. He doesn't get anything from anyone else. He says, therefore, you're your own life. You're the life by which you live. You're the wisdom by which you are wise. You are the goodness by which you are good, an affirmation of divine simplicity. Last one. If you're not tired of quotes, you will be by the end of this. He says, God is good. This is Dozal, excuse me. He says, God is good by virtue of God, not goodness. He is wise by virtue of God, not wisdom. He is powerful um, by virtue of God, not power. He is love by virtue of God, not love. Right. Again, so you get the point. I'm beating into your heads the very same thing over and over Again, so God's attributes are not something that he got as, as that he got from someone or something else. Rather, God simply is his attributes. Hence the definition, all that God has, God is. Okay, so that's moving from aseity to simplicity. Now, um, we talked about this a little bit last week as well, but um, the doctrine of creation ex nihilo, that God creates things, the universe, out of nothing, he speaks it into existence. Um, it also affirms divine simplicity. Uh, Romans chapter 4, verse 17. You guys know what the Apostle Paul says, that God calls into being that which does not exist. So, again, when God created the world, he didn't use pre-existing materials. Um, rather, all things are from God, through God, and ultimately to God. So there was never, like some ancient myths talk about, an original prime matter, or even in some of them, a primordial sea. Like there was this other entity existing alongside God as his equal, but instead, the unique understanding of creation in a Christian perspective is that um, God created everything out of absolute nothingness, both the material and immaterial. He called it to in being, to, uh, called it into being from nothingness. So, if we believe the doctrine of creation ex nihilo is true, and it is true, then God cannot be composed of parts. So, again, to explain this, let's pretend that God does have parts. Let's say that God is part love, part goodness, part holiness, and etc., etc. Those are things that he has, but not things that he is. He takes them and he embodies them in his own life. Now, if, if we were to say that's true... Um, does that not imply that those qualities existed either prior to God or alongside God? Right? If you say that God has parts, then these parts have to exist before him. Again, 
Dolezal says, If God should be composed of parts, then these parts would be before him in being, if not in time. And he would rightly be conceived as existing from them or of them. So in other words, they would give God his beings. They would have existed before him or alongside him in some sense, and creation ex nihilo would be false. Again, the parts of the watch exist prior to the watch. They're assembled. Um, The parts of your favorite dinner recipe, the ingredients, exist prior to the actual dinner itself. You assemble them, and then you get your dinner. And he's, he's essentially saying the same thing with God. It's very simple. That if these things existed before God, or God is made up of them, excuse me, they would have to exist either alongside God or even before him. And if God is composed of parts, then he can't be the source and origin of all things. And again, if this is the God that we worshipped, even though, let's say, he might be the creator of the universe, we would still have to look past him and his marvelous works to a more fundamental reality beyond him or behind him. Though he would uh, exceed us in every way, he would still be finite, a being and not being itself, right? Because if we don't confess that God is simple, we're stuck in an infinite regression. It has to stop somewhere, right? If God is not what he has, if God is not his own attributes, then he got his attributes from somewhere. And so, yeah, he might have created the universe, but there's a fundamental reality behind him, a more fundamental reality. Maybe it's love, maybe it's power, whatever. There's something still further. And then we still have to answer the question, well, what accounts for these? It has to stop somewhere with a being or, or a principle or something that just is. And the scriptures confess that the triune God is the end of that chain. The one who does not receive what he is, but simply is what he has. I am who I am. So one last quote here before um, we stop for a second and assess things. So Stephen uh, Carnock, he's writing in the 17th century. He says, God is the most simple being. For that which is first in nature, having nothing beyond it, cannot by any means be thought to be compounded. So again, that's made up of parts. For what, so, uh, for what is so depends upon parts whereof it is compounded, and so it is not the first being. Again, what he's been saying, if something is made up of parts, it's dependent on those parts, and furthermore, those parts have to exist before it, and therefore it can't be the source of all things. He says, now God, infinitely, now God being infinitely simple, hath nothing in himself which he is not himself. So it's, it's actually a philosophical argument for the existence of God, right? You have to keep going and going and going, and the scriptures testify, and we believe that God is the end of that chain. He is what he has. So how are we doing? Liz? Yes. 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 
character is this kind of behavior that is not a fact of affiliating with not a party of user? Or is it explaining that they are explaining why? Well, yeah, that passage um, is so interesting. And um, I, okay, yeah, I, I thought maybe I gave you the wrong um, explanation there. So if you look at verse 26, it affirms that both the Father and the Son have a seity. I skipped that detail last week because it involves a lot of explanation in regards to the Trinity, but it says, verse 26, for just as the Father has life in himself, so he's from himself, he's, um, he has a seity, and then Jesus says, even so he gave the Son also to have life in himself. So the Father has life in himself, and the Father gave the Son to also have life in himself. So whatever's going on in those other parts that you were reading, I don't think it nullifies a seity. And there's some things we have to take into consideration in regards to Jesus' human nature. Um, but verse 26 is pretty clear that they're both, they both possess um, this quality of divine aseity um, and the Holy Spirit kind of by implication as well. Is that, does that answer your question, Liz? Or no? Okay. Sure. Right, and it and it has to again because this is, uh, I think, aseity is the fundamental groundwork of divinity. Like if you deny that, you don't you don't have God. You're dealing with lesser reality. So if we were to say that, you know, the Father has life in Himself, but the Son and the Holy Spirit don't, then we're dealing with in the Son and the Holy Spirit lesser beings, not not God Himself. We're dealing with. Uh, something else. And, and in fact, that verse, um, John chapter 5, verse 26, is one of the main verses that establishes the Son's complete divinity alongside the Father. He has life from himself as, as well. The only difference that his, it, it was given to him by the Father, which is a whole other conversation in itself, um, which maybe we'll get to in a, in a class on the Trinity down the road. Um, any other questions regarding that? Maybe some of the things that Liz brought up? Yes. Well, maybe it, it kind of means that um, since Jesus said he doesn't do anything outside of the Father, it's just kind of showing that they are one. Exactly. And that the Godhead is one, so anything Jesus does would agree with whatever the Father is. Mm-hmm. Amen. Yeah, that's exactly right. That... Um, when Jesus says, I don't do anything except what I see my Father doing, is that from that, theologians um, have derived or established the doctrine of inseparable operations within the Trinity, so that it's not like Jesus has his own will, or the Son has his own will, the Father has his own will, and the Holy Spirit has his own will, and they're off just doing different things, but that they 
are all in complete agreement that what the Father does, the Son is doing, and the Holy Spirit is enacting, that they're not three separate things, but they're always working together. And you see that in some passages, like Ephesians 1, where there's this outline of salvation history. The Father wills it, the Son enacts it, and the Holy Spirit, um, the Son accomplishes it, and the Holy Spirit applies it, where there's, you see that this work is all one work, and it's not a separate thing. So that was a good insight, because that's absolutely right. Um, any other questions? Okay, simplicity. For some reason, I thought this was going to be a little bit more disagreeable. I wish it was. Well, we're going to get there, Mike. I know. Well, hold on. <laughs> so um, this section, I'm just going to skip through it. it. I wanted to show you guys if there was anyone who was like, oh, well, I don't know. Um, affirm this through church history. So the patristic period, this is like the very first 400 years of the church. Uh, Irenaeus affirmed it. Augustine affirmed it. Basil of Caesarea affirmed it. Gregory of Nyssa. All the heavyweights all were way on board. The medieval period, Boethius. This guy's writing, uh, yeah, I think Boethius. He's writing in uh, the late 500s, um, and he affirms it as well. Uh, oops, go ahead. You get it? <laughs> go ahead. We'll leave it up. Um, and then um, other guys in the medieval period, Anselm, I quoted him earlier, Thomas Aquinas, we've talked about him. The Reformation period, John Owen. Um, we have some of his books in our library. Um, he was a fierce defender of simplicity against um, the, the Scotians. I don't know exactly how you say it. It's a heresy that's revived itself in our day, um, but he, he totally stood against it. And then, um, I didn't have the examples, but uh, even major theologians today, Carl F.H. Henry, who recently passed away, um, it's basically affirmed across the board. So that would have been a section for anyone who disagreed, but or at least to, to help people out. So anyway, let's go back to simplicity and get to some controversy here. Um, now, here's that last jump that's kind of a hard step to make. Um, but again, I think its logic is sound. So for some, it, it's hard to understand. For some, it's still harder to accept. And again, I'm not going to twist anyone's arm on this, right? I'm not going to hold a gun to your head and say, this, you better believe this. It's, if you don't want to make that jump, that's okay. So God is what he has, therefore... His various attributes cannot be distinct things within him. There is one divine nature. And it's not made up of part love, part this, part whatever, but rather love, uh, holiness, power. These things just are God. So theologian Karl Barth, he says, Every individual perfection in God is nothing but God himself what we've been talking about. He says, and therefore, so this is the next step, nothing but every other divine perfection. So he says, in God, love is not one thing, power is not one thing, holiness is not one thing, but they're just the one divine nature. Um, so again, yeah, they're, they're, they're one thing. They're not separate parts that combine to make God as we've been saying, but they're just God himself, and God is not divisible. So let me read you a, a few more quotes. Herman Bavinck, 
uh, a favorite of ours that we've been coming back to again and again. He says, The simplicity of being does not exclude the many names ascribed to him, but demands them. He says, if we say that God is all of these things, or God is just, well, let me just keep reading. God is so abundantly rich, he says, that we can gain some idea of his richness only by the availability of many names. He says, every name refers to the same full divine being, but each time from a particular angle, the angle from which it reveals itself to us in his works. God is therefore simple in his multiplicity and manifold in his simplicity. So, God, so, so Bavink affirms the same thing about God, that all these attributes just are God. They're not different things within him. But he says to us, they appear different because we're approaching them from a different angle. Maybe from here, I see God and I see love. And then from this section, I'm in a different position, different circumstances in my life, and so what I see is mercy. And from another angle, maybe because of my sin, I see wrath. And so he says, they're all the same thing, but they manifest themselves to us differently in God's particular works. So I like the way he says it. God is therefore simple in his multiplicity and manifold in his simplicity. Um, Let me read a few more and then we'll open this up for discussion. Again, Stephen Duby says, What we apprehend and characterize as divine properties are not actually qualities inhering in God, but rather only the divine essence variously represented to us. Okay, so still same thing going on there. Um, I think the easiest way to explain it is by way of illustration. Think of it as uh, pure white light, which is... Uh, refracted in a prism, then it becomes right multiple colors. Right, think uh, uh, Pink Floyd. Right, the the image, the white light, the fracture. So, David Bentley Hart, in his book uh, The Experience of God, says one might imagine God as a pure white light which contains the full visible spectrum in its simple unity, and then imagine creatures as prisms which can capture that light only by their faceted finitude, thus diminishing it and refracting, refracting it into multiplicity. So, again, God himself is that pure white light, but we cannot receive him in his fullness. Uh, right? What does the scripture say? He dwells in inapproachable light. It's just too much for us. And so, the only way we can receive it is by refracting it through creation, through our experience, into the various colors of the visible spectrum. So, in, in God, they're all one, but in our experience, love seems like one thing, Uh, uh, mercy seems like one thing and wrath seems like another. But in reality, they're all one within God. Um, I'm belaboring the point. There's another quote from Edward Lee, a theologian from uh, the 17th century. He says the same thing. They're all one in him. His mercy is his justice. His justice is his mercy. Only they differ in our apprehension. So before I go on to disagreements that people have with this, I'd like to get survey the room and see how you feel about it, if that's something you're willing to maybe, okay, I can entertain that, and if not, maybe why not? Mike? Right. 
Yeah, and, and um, so Dozel in his argument, because I thought about the same thing, because of course, like, and I think part of what he's saying is that if God does exist in parts, he is within time, as what he's saying, as, you know, he's a composite being within time. So I, th- I think he would say that, but I agree with that thing. Um, but even if God is eternal, if love is not who he is, and if it's something alongside God, then it still is something distinct from God. So it might not be before God, but is it alongside God? It's like it's almost like a second God, right? Would you think, or no? It just, yeah. Yeah? Right. Right. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the logic is really sound, and and I and I agree with it. It, it I think it really I think it really is convincing. Um, but Mike's pointing out that part of that argument I think is right. That you know before is not a thing. So if God, I think maybe they would just say that it exists alongside God, and it, in that case it would be almost like a, a, again a second God. Go ahead. Yeah, and I would disagree with you there about the Trinity. I think in their being, in nature, and action, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit are identical. The only thing different about the Father and the Son is that the Father isn't the Son, the Son isn't the Father. Uh, Same thing with the Holy Spirit, that there's nothing different about them. They all possess the exact same divine nature, um, but they just exist in relation. So I don't know if I was misunderstanding what you were saying. But that doesn't necessarily mean that they're parts. It's not that the son is a part. He's 33% of the Godhead. The father's the other 33 and the Holy Spirit's the other. Right. Yeah. So that's that's how they used the doctrine of simplicity to affirm the Trinity. Because they were saying, no, 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 it's not three gods who combine to make one. They all possess the exact same divinity. They're just, and this is what clarifies what makes, how they differ from one another. Um, It's not, you know, three, gosh, this is so hard to explain, and that's why I didn't even want to get into it. But but yeah, I think you get the gist of, of, of where I'm going. Right again, they're 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 subsi- they're different relations within the Trinity, but I don't I wouldn't say that. Y- how do you affirm separateness but complete unity? I'm in the Father; the Father is in me. It, it's you know that's one of the. Yeah, what, and I think I think when. The, the, the author of the shack was he was off in some of his trinitarian theology especially about three separate entities right well, yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, it, it, it's a way to kind of wrap your head around it. right and, it, and 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 in a sense i mean who can 